You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs blog about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm a dinosauroid. And I am the terror that flaps in the night. Our paleo artist guest in this, our 10th episode, is Sharon Wegener Larsen, an illustrator giving some much needed representation to decorative but informative paleo art by way of surface design. She will be joining me and in his first and very welcome appearance on the podcast, our Lord and Blogmaster David Orr later. Before that, our vintage paleo art subject this month is not a publication, but that icon of vintage paleo art icons, the Age of Reptiles, Rudolf Zallinger's great mural for the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History, completed and revealed to the world in 1947. But first, as ever, we'll begin with some news from the paleosphere. Uh, Niels, I believe you have a report on Titanosaur integument standing by, but before that, a rather exciting announcement concerning, well, us. Yes, how about that? We have a true announcement to make because we have been invited to join a discussion panel. Now, this was originally going to be uh, an event in London and we'd show up and everything, um, That still seems to be a bit too ambitious, so it is going to be an online session. It's going to be for the Popularizing Paleontology series of events. Uh, That's PopPaleo. You might have heard of it. They can be found at poppaleo.com, and that's uh, paleo written in the British way, so the proper way. So um, (laughs) P-O-P-P-A-L-A-E-O. That's uh, how it's actually spelled. They organize all kinds of events, talks, discussions, workshops, that sort of thing. They have some very interesting events coming up, including a big discussion on paleontology podcasting. And that event is going to be on the 3rd of November. And uh, yeah, we will be joining that panel on uh, the podcasting side of popularizing paleontology. Joining us will be, among others, uh, David Hone, of course, of this podcast, but also his own, uh, Terrible Lizards. Gijs Rademaker is going to be joining us. He um, might be a familiar name if you are from the Netherlands. He is a familiar face, uh, an opinion pollster, who sometimes appears on television, but he also has his own Dutch podcast on dinosaurs. It's called DinoCast. Also joining the discussion will be one Darren Naish of Tetrapod Zoology, never heard of him. <laughs> Isn't that that Australian artist? I don't know, I get them confused. Yeah, pretending we don't know Darren, that's that's always going to be funny. Um, it's going to be on the 3rd of November. It's going to start at 5pm UK time. That's 5pm UK time, GMT. If you want to see us talk about podcasting and uh, join the events, you can mail the organizer. That would be Chris Manias. Uh, so chris.manias at kcl.ac.uk. Yeah, he'll get you in. So that's going to be very uh, interesting, very exciting. All three of us are going to be there, and uh, it's going to be lovely. I am absolutely terrified. Oh, I know. (laughs) Already. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, thank you, Niels. Um, All right, so so on to the Titanosaur news then. Um, Yes, this is just a a short bit. Uh, There is a new paper out by Julian Silva Jr. at Al. That's Jr. is, of course, very important so you don't mistake him for his old man. Um, It is a finite elements analysis 
on titanosaur osteoderms. Now, you might know uh, animals like saltosaurus, some of those later titanosaurs. Some of them have these uh, weird osteoderms, these weird bony bits on their backs. And um, superficially, they look a little bit like uh, ankylosaur armor. So it would be um, quite obvious to assume that they are some sort of defensive structure, maybe. But of course, you can't assume anything. So Julian Silva Jr. at L put that theory to the test. They um, used a finite element analysis to evaluate the bites of two possible predators, a crocodiliform and an abelisaurid theropod, into titanosaur osteoderms. And um, basically, the idea was to test if um, indeed the osteoderms would make the animals more impervious to attack. And according to these data, that seems to be indeed the case. Um, reading from the abstract here, our results showed that bites caused much less stress on osteoderms that did not went through internal resorption and were composed mainly by solid bone. Our data strengths the hypothesis that titanosaur osteoderms could provide more functions than just mineral storage. So there you have it. There is some corroboration to the idea that these titanosaur osteoderms in Saltosaurus and other titanosaurs were indeed some form of defense mechanism, which is very intriguing. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Mark, I think you have something to share of the much-vaunted Uzbek Karkorodontosaur. Yes, so... It always feels redundant talking about this because it's been absolutely plastered across the media, more on which shortly. But basically, <laughs> this is uh, this is a new Carcharodontosaurian theropod dinosaur um, occupying the apex predator niche in the early late Cretaceous of Uzbekistan, to paraphrase the title of the actual paper, uh, published in Royal Society Open Science, so it's open access. It's from a formation uh, which in Uzbekistan, which dates to about 90 million years ago, and the animal was, um, <laughs> as made a great deal of in the media, it is the latest known Carcharodontosaur from Laurasia, in other words, the continents in the northern hemisphere, that coexist with a Tyrannosauroid. In this case, a very small animal named um, Timolengia, about three or four meters long, whereas this new animal, which has been named <clears throat> Uleg. <laughs> Ulegbegosaurus uzbekistanensis. Let me say that again. Ulegbegosaurus. 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 So, of course, the big deal about this is that um, although it's really only known from bits of jaw and you know teeth, um, and particularly this maxilla, as figured in the paper, it's it's a very big maxilla. <laughs> so um, they estimate it to be about um, eight or nine meters long and weighing over a ton. All right, so that's basically uh, the size of Allosaurus. Uh, yes, or the size of Neoveneta, which was more, obviously more closely related. Yeah, being quite large, it would have been, it's the largest known theropod from the formation. It pushes back again the time, uh, or pushes forward rather, the time that Carcharodontosaurs, which you should not say too quickly, were the, the dominant large-bodied predators of their ecosystems in the Northern Hemisphere. Obviously, after that, the big body tyrannosaurs take over. You end up with the tyrannosaurids being in charge and ultimate culminating in T-Rex. And then the asteroid comes down and kills them all. But um, 
this has been made a big deal of in the media. Um, often they really didn't understand exactly what they were talking about. So you end up with things like um, glorious headlines, like it's basically saying it was bigger than T-Rex or that it competed with T-Rex was a good one that I found earlier on. Um, yeah, well, I mean, predated Tyrannosaurus is possibly correct, maybe. I mean, it may have predated the smaller well, Tyrannosaurus. Well, from a certain hand. point of view, but it really gives the general reader a completely different view of what was happening. Yeah, but um, I guess it could have done. And yes, as, as big as T-Rex, that it, it competed with T-Rex, it fought T-Rex. It had nothing to do with T-Rex. Um, this isn't Jurassic World. You know, it's not some crazy <laughs> fantasy um, made up by Colin Trevorrow-Rowe. It's this is the real world, and the only contemporary Tyrannosaur was a small-ish Tyrannosauroid. This whole angle, of course, of it fighting Tyrannosaurs and it being as big as a T-Rex is just media silliness, which um, it did strike me. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. It's uh, Because it's been 10 years since I um, graduated from the University of Lincoln, of all places, and my undergraduate dissertation was on the representation of um, well, paleontology in general, but in particular, dinosaurs, dinosaur paleontology in the news media. So, and this really reminded me of um, all the research I did at that time and how absolutely nothing has changed. It's still really bad. It's just uh, all about hype and all about teeth and all about fighting T-Rex and all this. And it's just, just embarrassing. Oh, heavens. <laughs> the post-truth world, man. Uh, well then, uh, finally, um, this will be the second episode in a row in which I bring you pterosaur news. Am I growing fonder of them? Who knows? But if it should incidentally prolong the debate between Mark and Niels as to whether the P is silent, then that's more added entertainment value yet for our listeners. But anyway, a new paper by Serguera uh, et al. Uh, describes Kariri Draco Diani. Uh, a new tapijarid astarcoid pterosaur from the early Cretaceous Romualdo formation in Brazil. Uh, the holotype comprises an incomplete skull, a lower jaw, and some cervical vertebrae. Uh, the discovery, of course, not only brings to light this new pterosaur and adds to the diversity of the Araripe basin, but gives further clues as to the paleobiogeography uh, of tapijarid pterosaurs, which until now were thought to have had a Eurasian origin, which then spread southwards to diversify in central Gondwana. But Kariri Draco's existence challenges this by indicating that there are indeed Tavijarids indigenous to central Gondwana itself. And that's uh, about it, my friends. Of course, I must mention that uh, there is a beautiful illustration of Kariri Draco to accompany this paper um, by uh, Julia uh, D'Oliveira. Um, the crest uh, is actually missing from the skull material, but Julia has reconstructed it with a fabulous whopper of a crest, which is quite typical of Tapijarids. And uh, the paper uh, is once again very happily open access and is published by Acta Paleontologica Polonica. And uh, we will again include links to all of the news items we've been talking about on our show notes. Thank you. Fantastic. So. Onto our vintage dinosaur art. Vintage dinosaur art. Rudolf Zellinger's The Age of Reptiles. Uh, our regular listeners will recall that we covered the news of the mural's restoration back in episode four. And now we finally get to talk 
about the mural itself. Um, it occupies the east wall of the Great Hall of the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History in New Haven, Connecticut, and was completed between 1942 to 1947. The actual painting part of the work took about three and a half years after some 18 months or so of preliminary work, which included a crash course, apparently, on comparative anatomy and the flora and fauna of the distant past. Um, Zallinger was a senior at Yale School of Fine Arts when he was recruited for the task of illuminating with artwork the then exceedingly grey Great Hall in 1942. He was uh, working on uh, illustrations of marine algae for the then director of the Peabody, Albert Parr, at the time. Uh, and it was then subsequently under the directorship of Parr's successor, Carl O. Dunbar, that the Age of Reptiles was guided towards completion. So, my friends, where would we like to begin? Should we do this in chronological order and start with the Devonian side of the mural? Yeah, that, that, was, that was going to be my suggestion, to start on the right and then work our way left as we go forward in time. Fantastic. But first of all, man, that, that Rudolf Salinger, what a hero. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Well, actually. yes. Because, you, you know, uh, um, the version of this I have appears in my copy of Zoe Lascaze's uh, paleo art. And uh, what she makes clear was that, well, as you said, uh, Nati, um, the main dinosaur hall uh, of Yale was very drab and gray, right? And that was mostly due to Othniel Marsh, because it was Othniel Marsh's museum. And Othniel Marsh was like, paleo art. Ah! <laughs> you know, he was like, uh, I, I shan't be having any of that. I, I always imagine that's how Othniel Marsh sounds, even though he was American. <laughs> so, yeah, he was dead. And um, they were like, eh, we should probably spruce this place up a bit. So they commissioned this student. He was really young. He was like 20 at the time, Zalinger. And their idea was like, you know, let's, let's put an illustration or two on the wall here just to spruce it up a little bit. And Rudolph was like, you know what? <laughs> We can do better than that. We can do better than that. <laughs> yes. Um, as I understand it, they were intending to do separate panels uh, of artworks on the walls. But it was uh, mostly Rudolf's own thinking uh, to transform it into a full-length mural across uh, the entire wall. Yeah. And uh, as you said, the guy didn't know anything about, um, about dinosaurs. He was just educating himself on the fly. Yeah. And let's not forget there's an age of mammals as well, um, although we're not talking about that one. <laughs> no, <laughs> indeed. <cares>. No. <clears throat> we're only talking about the age of reptiles, which, as you say, starts in the Devonian with um, a load of animals that aren't reptiles, um, goes on to the Permian with a load of animals that aren't reptiles, and then finally in the Triassic, <laughs> we have like, animals that are reptiles. But of course, this is according to modern understanding, I jest somewhat. Um, it starts in the Devonian. What is most striking about this is, well, for me, it's the flora. So the fact that the, the well-researched flora changes so dramatically from this utterly alien-looking landscape in the Devonian, and then just gradually moving through, um, you know, cycads, horsetails, pine trees, then you get towards the Cretaceous, and suddenly you've got flowering plants and, and very, flowers. Yeah, modern-looking yeah. yes. trees in the latest Cretaceous, and that transition is handled remarkably well over the course of the. Um, fresco. Yes. Yeah, and it also drives home the point how vastly closer we are to the Cretaceous than the Cretaceous was to the Devonian. Exactly. Yes, so. it does really hammer home the sheer amount of time 
in between the right hand side and the left hand side of the uh, of the mural and it, it is more because the animals aren't entirely unfamiliar so we can't really um anchor ourselves to those we can't necessarily intuitively understand how ancient they are but we can get a sense from the surrounding flora of just how ancient and alien the devonian landscape is because we look at that and we see this mm-hmm. landscape but the trees are all strange um well at first glance you might look like you know just your regular palm tree or something is actually a giant <laughs> tree fern um and you have all these horse tails it's, it's just yeah really remarkable and of course our old favorite the uh, fallen log you got to have a fallen log in there um, in fact i think there are a couple absolutely yep spruces up any scene any paleo art scene makes it look much more convincing instantly it's uh yep it's fallen log appreciation society um it's what i plan on starting in the near future um <laughs> yeah the animals i mean i <laughs> Obviously, the reconstructions, prob- possibly, probably in the um, further back in time, have aged a bit better, just because I guess a lot of these animals were known from fairly complete remains. I mean, I know reconstructions, a reconstruction of um, Dimetrodon, for example. Sorry, skipping ahead to the Permian, <laughs> but uh, would be somewhat different these days. But you look at that and you recognise it instantly as um, a Dimetrodon. You can see a Sphenacodon in the background and um, a Daphosaurus, and they're all instantly recognisable. I mean, that they are more uh, reptilian than they would be now for obvious reasons. Just from an aesthetic uh, standpoint, I do want to say that the the Permian section of the mural is perhaps my favourite part. Uh, curiously enough. Uh, despite the fact that there are no dinosaurs in this, just because the palette is so beautiful to me. These uh, the hot pinks of the, the distant rocks uh, and mountains um, as contrasted uh, against the, the darkness of the animals in front. Uh, it's, it's just breathtaking to me. And also, you were mentioning earlier, Mark, about the extraordinary um, painting of the vegetation my favorite tree, perhaps in this entire mural, is, um, I believe, this Cordites, which is next to the Svenacodont. It looks for all the world as though it had sprung from an early Renaissance painting. And we can come back to this later because these were the very things that, uh, that Zalinger uh, was drawing from. Uh, the influences of the early Renaissance, both uh, in terms of the actual methods uh, with which he painted and some of the uh, ideas uh, that he got, uh, that he um, gathered as well. But but yeah, but this tree, it looks like it could have been painted by Giotto or, or Memling or, or one of the early Renaissance masters. Well, it was the fashion of the day too. Um, when we discussed this mural earlier, uh, Unity said... Um, that the mural is actually a fresco. Yes, it is indeed. Back in back in those days, especially around the time that Salinger was getting his art education, there was a bit of a fresco revival going on in the USA. Yeah. A lot of Depression-era art are frescoes. Very interesting. Yes. And and Salinger himself took a great deal of his, uh, his inspiration and his whole driving force uh, for this mural from uh, the writings of Cennino Cennini, who was a painter in the early 15th century, who wrote a treatise on painting. And yes, um, as we were saying, not only are the techniques um, that of the early Renaissance, this uh, uh, fresco secco, which is painted on dry plaster, but uh, as you said, Niels, the, the, the themes and ideas, a lot of it came from that as well. So it's, it's no surprise, really, that you, you find these um, shades, if you will, of the Renaissance throughout all of this. Isn't it 
interesting how the color palette shifts from right to left. Obviously, we're meant to read it right to left, and that's just because exactly. of uh, how it's set up in the in the hall. Um, particularly the sky. Well, I mean everything, but the sky shifts from being reddish, which I suppose is like the dawn, and then moving through to the day almost. Um, so we're getting further ahead in time. We're, go we're going we're going from the dawn yeah, and then progressing through the day um, until we that's get to right. the Cretaceous, where it's actually the well, we have a kind of bluish sky and and a more bluish greenish um, color palette in general, and of course the flowering plants coming in as well, adding a little bit of a splash of color. But generally, it's more green. Whereas earlier on, you have more of these, in particularly in the Permian, of course, which is meant to depict this very arid landscape in the background. More reds, pinks. Uh, can we talk about the dinosaurs, though? Yeah, dinosaurs. Yeah, dinosaurs. Because that's, that's what we're here for. Yeah, dinosaurs. Platyosaurus. Yes, bipedal and quadrupedal. Um, of course, the the bipedal dinosaurs in this do look all rather awkward, um, which was just, it was the style at the time in the 1940s. Uh, so, I mean, none looks more awkward than the Allosaurus um, in the background uh, in that particular part of the mural. But yeah, the, the Platyosaurus. Yeah, the background one, the really tubby one. The really tubby. Yeah, it's pretty, really pot-bellied uh, Allosaurus. Um, he does have this slightly odd tendency to the um, the shoulders, the animal's shoulders, especially on the bipedal animals, the shoulders look like they're right up into their neck. And there's none more so than on that Saltipusuchus, where it doesn't look has, doesn't appear to have much of a neck to speak of at all. But uh, you also see it on like the T-Rex and the Allosaurus to an extent as well. Um, again, I guess it's just because of contemporary thinking. Although, the um, again, it seems to be more egregious on the background tubby one than on the foreground Allosaurus. Um, <laughs> but let's to be criticising these. Like, how, how dare I criticise this amazing work of art? It's, how dare you, problem Mark? Is yeah. that because I know, but part of the problem is that because I grew up in this... Um, Obviously, I was a kid in the 1990s, and this type of artwork was brought up only as a demonstration. We were we were at the tail end of the dinosaur renaissance; it pretty much already happened. And this artwork was brought up only as a demonstration of what was wrong and how wrong-headed people were in the days before, you know, Saint Backer and um, Saint GSP came down and um, told us how to do everything correctly. Yeah. Um, it was like this. This was, look at how stupid it was. Look, they're all dragging their tails and they look really dumb, and they're just like these fat. T-Rex with the it's, pot belly. It's and... worse than you think, Mark. It's worse than it's I think. It's worse than you think. Yeah, because back in the um, 1980s, they were actually considering changing this mural to better reflect modern thinking. Imagine. Can you conceive yeah, that been of that? <laughs> <laughs> My word. That would, that would have been appalling. Yeah. Yeah, God. I'm, I'm glad they didn't because now it's preserved for for all time i mean of course and but then that 80s mural would have been outdated you know 10 20 years later oh yeah so, yes right. of course it would have exactly what, would they then update it again you'd end up with like 20 layers of paint <laughs> i find it hard to get past that um what was instilled in me as a child that negative view towards these reconstructions as being out of date and you know showing this outmoded wrong-headed thinking and there's still a part of me that finds it hard to look past that and just appreciate them as amazing artworks. Although, of course, of course, I can. Um, I mean, I imagine, Mark, if you uh, if you stood before it, yes. you would probably be captivated by it. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm captivated by it anyway. I mean, there's no doubt. If I would, I find it a very moving experience to actually see it in person. I would love to see it in person. Oh, um, goodness. Yes. It's such an yeah. inspirational piece of art. It's absolutely fantastic uh, and such a monumental achievement. Yeah, definitely. 
in terms of the i mean there are some nice touches on these reconstructions even though as i said i find it hard to get past my um 90s kids kind of uh, disdain towards how sluggish and dull they look or dull in terms of behavior and so on not in terms of artistic quality at all just to be clear yeah i find that the hardest to overcome in the case of the sauropod yeah so it's in a swamp and it's munching something there is of course one in the background that's walking along on the ground although it's definitely heading to the swamp um but there are some very nice touches here so the um the crest running along the back of the allosaurs um the sort of speculative spines going down its back beautifully depicted and particularly the hadrosaur has uh, almost looks like has these longer uh, crests running down its neck almost looks like a kind of display on this um, speculative display on this oh yeah it that's does beautiful yeah, yeah i love that montasaur i guess a uh, trachodon it would have been called and the t-rex has these curious uh, crenulations running down its um over its hips and down its tail it's an interesting touch uh, that sort of blend in with the outline of the body. They're not like very distinct scales. They just sort of, just sort of the body outline is this uh, wavy line, which, uh, as I said, crenulations almost. With with, with the T Rex, we have to come to something interesting that I picked up from Lascaz, because the reproduction that appears in Lascaz is actually not the mural, but a study that Zalinger made before uh, actually ah, painting yes. the, the the real thing. Yes, the tempera uh, the tempera um, panel that he prepared. Yeah, That's the tempera right. panel, which, according to my um, data, is just over two meters long. So that's still a pretty sizable painting. Yeah. What Lascaz says, and to be honest, I'm inclined to agree, if anything, the study is better. Because the study is a bit more detailed. It has a slightly more vibrant palette. And the difference, uh, especially with the big allosaur and the big tyrannosaur and also the sauropod, is very striking, just how much more detail he gets in there on the study if you look at the tyrannosaur's head it's much more scaly in the study the feet as well the skin of the animal is much more wrinkled much more detailed so yeah you can't help but think maybe for the big mural he did bite off a bit more than he could chew perhaps yes well but nevertheless (laughs) i'm inclined to think that it is an issue of uh the practicality and difference of medium. Oh, I, I don't doubt it. Yeah. Also, the, the method uh, with which he painted the mural is an exceedingly painstaking one because other than uh, the, the tempera panel in, uh, that he prepared for it, uh, which essentially is, is a, a finished color study, there was obviously the, lots of preparatory sketches beforehand, but also the actual fresco itself. After the drawing stage, he went in with an underpainting of mostly um, black and burnt umber paint, which was very strongly uh, overmodeled um, on purpose, so that the the underpainting would then show through the layers of color that he applied later. Right. And, and I imagine that uh, other than just the sheer time <laughs> of three and a half years that it took to complete, besides that, I think the technique itself probably ends up obscuring uh, some of the things that he intended as well as deliberate changes that he made. I mean, one, one obvious example um, being the, the, the meganeuropsis yes. in the carboniferous Perhaps. section. That underwent a complete change from his uh, tempera study, for instance. Um, and that was on purpose. And I wonder, I wonder how much of the other things that were lost from the, the tempera piece um, was on purpose as much as anything else. Yeah, another thing to note the Great Hall of the of the Yale Museum, it was open 
right? It was open That's for right. the duration of, of him painting that. Yes. And people could just walk in and, and watch him do it. And uh -huh. it was like yeah. it was like a performance. Hmm. Oh, wouldn't that have been amazing to see? You always forget that, Dancing. But the, the, okay, so on the more positive side, the, the detail in the skin is fantastic. If you look at the Adasaur in particular, the, um, the Adasaur that's further in the foreground, or well, it's, it's in the middle ground, the middle ground Adasaur, the one chewing a carcass. Um, just the, the careful attention to detail on its, the, the tiny, tiny skin folds in, in its scaly skin, very um, lizard-like. And the rough texture of it, it's fantastically well done. Yeah. Even the carcass it's chewing on, it's clearly rather an old carcass. It's been there for a while. It looks absolutely revolting, um, which is exactly right. So yeah. it should be. It's perfect. Do, do you reckon it's um, it's a nod to Charles Knight to have it hunched over the carcass like that? Or is it a nod to that museum mount? Uh, possibly both. I mean, it's just, it was just a thing, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Obviously, Charles Knight was basically... His work was based on that AMNH mount and maybe Zaninger's as well was based on Knight. Um, it's interesting that Zaninger's Allosaurus is considerably more portly looking than Knight's is. It's a lot bulkier, um, especially that one in the background, as we've already mentioned, the kind of potbelly one. Um, it looks a lot bulkier. I have noticed though that the uh, the hind limb musculature, he does give them fairly hefty thighs, even though the lower leg is then fairly diminished and lizard-like. Yeah. Um, especially on the quite fittingly on, on the T-Rex. Um, but that, that does, does compare favorably with earlier reconstructions by people like Knights, where even the um, the upper portion of the leg was thin for not really any good reason, other than they were perceived as being very lizardy and, um, you know, reptilian, and they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had big muscles because they were cold-blooded and stupid and, you know, slow. Um, so there, there is that. There's an interesting development in the 1940s. People often say, well, um, not a lot of progress has made in that era. Clearly, something's happened. Yeah, because you see, you see those big thigh muscles in the work of uh, Burian as well. Yeah, so clearly people are paying a bit more attention to that by this time. Even if the lower legs are a bit um, overly skinny <laughs> compared to uh, how they'd be restored now, which again is just because they were perceived as these um, cold-blooded, slow reptiles. Yeah, it's it's, it's epitomised in that Stegosaurus in particular, which is the classic Martian kind of hunt-backed. Uh, head in the head, pretty much plowing through the dirt. Um, look with sprawls, forelimbs. Yes. Um, I, I love the ankylosaur. By the way, the ankylosaur reminds me so much of the um, little in pro figure that I had as a kid, and I've got now again, admittedly, but <laughs> I originally got it as a kid. Um, it was a sculpt that came out, I think, in the 1970s. These tiny dinosaur toys, and exactly that color. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I love these old old school ankylosaurs, which are very like stubby and cute. Um, I don't know something something curiously adorable about them, and that Triceratops has a weird frill. Um, yeah, it does. Sure why I've seen that one reproduced <laughs> billions of times as well. Yeah, there must be a reason for that slightly odd shaped fan frill, um, but I'm not sure what it is. Do we have anything to say about the uh, volcanoes in the background? Because uh, on the one hand, it is a cliche. <laughs> on the other, on a, on a painting like this, I can kind of accept it because. It's sort of this metaphorical um, recreation of deep time, and yes. you know that there was increased volcanic activity during the Cretaceous. Therefore, we're painting volcanoes in the Cretaceous. Oh yeah, I can completely accept it. Exactly. You can also see it as a portent of um, extinction. 
you can see it's, you can see it's a foreboding sign of what's going to yes, come indeed. the dinosaurs because obviously you're going from uh, mm -hmm. the dawn um, over on the right in the Devonian and then we're going through the skies getting bluer as we move over and at the and end they we start have the volcanoes again. dominating exactly. the, um, the sky yeah a sense gate. of foreboding yeah and it starts yeah. to darken with all the volcanic yeah. dust and yes there is another little detail there if you look at the base of the uh, large flower you can see in the dirt there, right next to uh, the artist's signature, you can see a little uh, mammal. You can see a little yes, shrew. Yes, that's right. And uh, yeah. uh, on all the studies, all the sketches and uh, the color study as well, that mammal is not there. Uh -huh. That is a new addition. So there we are. Make of that what you will. Uh, Lascaz interprets it as a uh, portent of doom for the dinosaurs and the rise of the mammals consequently well I, i'd say the volcanoes in the background are the obvious more obvious portent of two <laughs> like yes there's a tiny mammal but also these huge great volcanoes I, I guess they could both be um with the mammal being the more subtle one uh, much more subtle well what more can we say about it i mean it is an extraordinary piece of work and i'm i'm glad we've talked about it because it's almost impossible to imagine the history of paleo art without Rudolf Salinger exactly. and this thing in particular. It is, it is one of the most, um, it's truly deserving of the word iconic oh, for yes. a change. It is one of the most influential and important pieces of paleo art ever produced. It's, um, there's no way you can uh, apply too much hyperbole <laughs> for this one. It's, uh, yeah, it's absolutely key. You both mentioned earlier um, that it was difficult um, for you to get over the fact uh, that... Uh, that the animals uh, seem outdated now. and uh, But for me, I absolutely do not have this problem, curiously enough. And I'm not sure why, other than all the things that we already mentioned about just how extraordinary and how iconic and just how plain beautiful this is. I, I wouldn't have it any other way than it is. Yes, for me, it transcends uh, all of those things. It, it feels timeless in its own way. In a, in a way that I'm not able to describe clearly. <laughs> I'm very overawed by it. And this, and this is me looking at the reproductions. Uh, Vincent Scully, uh, the Sterling Professor Emeritus of the History of Art at Yale, um, wrote a, a beautiful essay about this painting. Uh, and I recommend um, that you read it if you have time. But he mentions that um, in situ, when you see these glimpses of these animals appear through the skeletons that are displayed in the Great Hall brings a whole new uh, appreciation of them. And just the very thought of that to me uh, is giving me goosebumps. And that, I think, is where I will end. Our guest this episode is Sharon wegener Larson an illustrator with a strong surface design focus. Her richly decorative compositions serve to communicate science by way of accessible, everyday items ranging from homewares to clothing and everything in between. Through her work, you can indeed imbibe paleontology whilst drinking from a mug with her motifs or almost literally wear your natural history heart on your sleeve. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Chasmosaurs. Thank you so much, Niti. Uh, thank you for having me, inviting me on. I've been a fan of Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs for a very long time, so this is really exciting. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you so much. 
Um, well, Sharon, straight on to the first question then. Um, as a listener to the podcast yourself, for which are many grateful thanks, um, I think you already know what to expect with the first question. Uh, tell us, if you would, what first got you interested in paleontology? Yes, um, I thought a really long time about this question, uh, trying to think of a very specific answer, but ultimately I came up with a similar answer to, to many of the artists who've been on, <laughs> yes. which is I honestly can't remember a time before I was interested in dinosaurs and animals and nature and prehistoric life and fossils and rocks and all those kinds of things. Um, so I couldn't remember a specific reason, yeah. but I think The Land Before Time was maybe one of the first uh, big pop culture things, I guess, that I attached myself yeah. to. Uh, watched that one over, <laughs> over and over mm -hmm. again and had all the toys and stuff. And um, I was 11 when Jurassic Park came out. And I already had a very strong interest by that time. That was a big deal for me as yeah. well, of course. <laughs> um, that re really reinforced my interest. There were so many toys available and just so much excitement around it. So uh -huh. um, that was that was a big deal for me as well. Yeah. Um, but I was always collecting rocks and um, really into dinosaur toys. Um, at first, they were just really, you know, whatever dinosaur toys my parents could get a hold of for me. But eventually, I got really into collecting, like, the Carnegie Collection yes. type figures and stuff like that. So, <laughs> Yeah. Were you, uh, did you have a museum that was nearby or any formative museum experiences? I don't remember when I was really young, but there were a couple museums I got to when I was pretty young. One of them was the Museum of Geology on the campus of the, the School of Mines of Technology in um, Rapid City, and then the Black Hills Institute in Hill City, South Dakota. Got a chance to go to both of those museums with my family, and that also got me very excited about paleontology. I always wondered, coming from Indiana with its uh, massive lack of anything in between the Paleozoic and the Pleistocene, what it would be like, you know, if there, if the presence of, of, of Mesozoic life was, was different for somebody who grew up in actual dinosaur country in, in, at least in the U.S. Yeah. I guess you wouldn't know because you didn't grow up where I grew up and I didn't grow up where you grew up. No, that's, that's a good point because um, my younger years, I was in Florida and I don't know if there are any good dinosaur museums in that area, but it was when I, when my parents would bring me back to visit family in South Dakota. And then eventually when we moved to South Dakota, that's when I started having some museum experiences more in dinosaur country. So yeah, that's a good, good point. I, I do just want to say that I was very glad to hear you mention The Land Before Time, which I think is probably the first so far for, for our podcast. Um, uh, I mean, you and David and I are uh, around the same age, and I think uh, The Land Before Time probably does feature heavily as uh, our dinosaur starter pack, I suppose. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can't even imagine how many times my parents endured watching that movie. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, Sharon, your work then, as I hinted at in the introduction, is very much uh, following in the tradition of the decorative arts. You're less concerned with reconstructed scenes of prehistoric past uh, in the way that perhaps most people associate with the term paleoart, but are instead applying paleontology-themed designs to items of everyday use. Um, how did you arrive at this approach? Yeah, um, it's been a very long path um, in my career to kind of get to this place that I am right now. Uh, I started as a as more of a fine art painter, um, like oil paint on large canvases and big acrylic paintings and, yeah. uh, you know, more abstract watercolor paintings even. And I was always um, exploring this subject matter, nature and earth science, natural history. But, you know, trying to make a living as an artist is a, it's not always easy to to match those things up, right? Fine art and, and making a living. And so um, I started delving more into to decorative things, I suppose, to, to try to solve that problem. Yeah. And um, much to my surprise, really embraced and enjoyed it so much. Um, got very excited about surface design, applying my illustrations to things like fabrics, mm. t-shirts, and uh, everyday objects that people can really relate to. I think that, I think part of the, what's interesting to me is that, that like when I think about those early dinosaur experiences or those memories that we all talk about is often it, it's just that sort of thing. It's like a, uh, bed sheets or a pair of pajamas or yes. a mug or something like that. Uh, and I, I love how your work, like it reminds me of, brings me back to those feelings, but it of course elevates it beyond far beyond what cheap consumer yeah. <laughs> products of the eighties would have been. Yes, exactly. So Sharon, you were then um, no doubt able to draw from the best of both worlds um, from your background in, in both fine art and graphic design. Yeah. Um, Sometimes it's frustrating to think about a path that's so meandering, you know, like, why couldn't I have arrived at, at this sooner <laughs> or something yes. like that? But really, to get to the work that I'm making now, it was essential to kind of go through all of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the painting and the color theory and, and, and all that, and then pick up the skills I did in, in graphic design, the digital skills, and then start combining that being able to embrace surface design and everything and kind of put it all together. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I think it really shows because um, they are fully realized, uh, carefully conceived elements, um, you know, with, with attention paid to their function as surface ornaments and not, for instance, an isolated drawing um, just placed on something and, and then you can just call it a day. Um, it's certainly not that. When I spoke of your being in the decorative arts tradition, um, that's, that's exactly what I had in mind. It's, uh, you are following the footsteps of historical decorative artists. Um, can you tell us um, what your influences were? Yeah, um, well, you know, my influence have, influences have changed a lot 
throughout my career, of course. My interest in art is really eclectic and I like looking at all different kinds of things. You know, I, I took a lot of art history in college and just soaked that up like a mm. sponge. I just yeah. love looking at all of it. But more specifically, for where I'm at now, I am really influenced by science illustration, uh, straight up science illustration from any period. And especially I like looking at kind of vintage science um, books, I guess, book illustration. And um, Ernst Haeckel, mm. um, I'm never sure, sure if I'm saying his name correctly, um, is the first one that always comes to mind. Um, just so beautiful. And the way those compositions are laid out, the colors, everything, I, I, I just love it. Yes. But also just kind of generic science illustrations in any old science book you might pick up, particularly some of the engravings and stuff from the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah. Um, the way that it's laid out, kind of the stippling and the line work, the that kind of flat lay perspective where everything is laid out uh, separately uh, you know, kind of like specimens, kind of all, you know, they have the space between them and they're all kind of laid out like they're in a shadow box or something. Mm. That kind of flattened and simplified, uh, you know, idealized style, especially like the the lateral view where it's, yes. um, yeah, just kind of an idealized image of something rather than necessarily looking naturalistic or realistic you know, almost kind of stiff or stuffy sometimes in a way. Um, but then I guess to kind of counteract that stiffness, uh, you know, there's always this play between like a, a scientific stiffness and then like a flowing feel. Um, uh, I'm always kind of playing with those two things kind of back and forth in yes. my work. And so another big influence for me is, this isn't a very good category, but I would kind of loosely categorize this as vintage psychedelic illustration. Yeah. Um, it seems to be the complete opposite <laughs> of uh, science illustration. But uh, I worked at a used bookstore for many years, and I started seeing vintage paperback books from a certain era coming in again and again, and I, I just never seen anything quite like it. It was from around 1950 to 1980s-ish yeah. um, vintage paperback cover art, and usually in the science fiction or fantasy genre, the most beautiful um, uh, kind of psychedelic-ish, <laughs> that's the best way I can describe it, Yes, um, illustrations. I'd, I'd never seen anything quite like it. And um, so a couple of examples of my favorites would be like Leo and Diane Dillon. Uh, they were a couple who did these illustrations together. Yeah. And Bob Pepper as well. Um, so I, I, I picked up kind of that flattened color and the gradients and usually kind of minimal shading and a very graphic look. Not all of them had a focus on, on line work, but I, I, some of them did, and I picked that up from it a yes. lot. It, you know, this doesn't really fit in that category, but also um, I started looking at Mobius. Oh, yes. Gene, Gene Gerard's 
work around that time as well. Kind of, I just started finding these artists um, that were kind of actively working in that in that period, and then um, album art as well. Then from the 1960s and 70s, like Roger Dean covers a lot of the things that I get most excited about um, as influences. Yes, I think it's quite clear to see from your work um, the influences that you spoke of. Uh, the the mostly uh, strong line work and saturated colors. Um, and, and you mentioned, uh, you, you self-deprecatingly, I'm sure, that there was a kind of stiffness, which, which I uh, have to disagree with, actually, because although there is a formality um, to them by virtue of their being uh, motifs and patterns, um, I, I wouldn't say they were in any way stiff at all. Um, you do combine that, that formal design sense uh, with, as you spoke um, of, uh, with uh, organic um, line work and a sense of, well, a sense of life, even even as a flat design in your illustrations of, of organisms. And I think, would I be right, um, other than the influences that you already mentioned, would I be right in assuming that you had uh, Art Nouveau and, and Japanese uh, woodblock prints among your inspirations as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, I guess, psychedelic illustration as I kind of put that in, in quotes, right, um, of the 1960s. I think the, that was really inspired by Art Nouveau and, and Japanese woodblock. And um, so, yeah, very much so. I, I, I look at a lot of that stuff and I have looked at a lot of that stuff um, throughout my career but um, never in the past, I don't know if I was really applying it. Um, so it's kind of uh, fun to, to come back around to those things, I suppose. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I can see all of those various influences coming together in a really cohesive way in, in your entire body of work, but especially like looking at many of the things you've been doing over the last few years, like it, I don't know, it all ties, ties in so well. Mm, I agree. It sounds perfectly natural to hear you talk about your influences and say, yep, exactly. okay, yeah, this is someone who knows, knows themselves artistically. <laughs> yes, I fully agree with that. Thank you. I, I have to talk about my um, vintage dinosaur art influences as well. Oh, yes. I, I have to um, mention William Stout, of course. That should have been at the, of course, at the yes. top of my list here. That was, um, so someone, I don't know who, I was too young to have it, but someone gave me the book, The Dinosaurs, A Fantastic New View of a Lost Era by William Stout. And that just rocked my little world when I was <laughs> a little kid. I have so many drawings that I can tell were just, you can tell that they're, anyone who's looked through this this book can tell that they're a direct copy, you know, when you're learning to draw, when you're a little kid, you just copy things. So um, I just spent hours looking through this book and copying and practicing what I saw there. The, the line work style was a really massive influence on me. Yes. And, you know, I should mention too that Comic books are definitely an influence on me now, but I had absolutely no exposure to comic books when I was a little kid. And so William Stout's style was um, 
that was really, really important to me. I, I didn't have another way of really seeing that. I don't think. Sure. And he and had more than it, a, he had also had more than a little Art Nouveau. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Him, oh, yeah. So absolutely. Oh, yes. The art, art deco and art nouveau. And I think that um, I like to think that the way that, so looking through this book, it's the combination of the scientific subject matter with that art nouveau and all those decorative, beautiful decorative elements. I like to think that that just kind of seeped into me and has been steeping all these years. Oh, you yes. know? <laughs> um, well, on, on the subject of science communication, then, um, to, to go back to the point you made earlier, David, about, um, about how Sharon's work as, um, perhaps you'd call a consumer merchandise being such uh, an integral cultural connection, the earliest cultural connection to most people. And, and Sharon being able to uh, produce these things in, uh, as you said, an elevated but approachable way. Um, I think, Sharon, this chimes exactly with your own aims, um, as you described it as uh, in the supporting role to science communication and accessibility for a general audience. Um, could you tell us more about the sort of aims you had in mind? Yeah, um, I, you know, I always have a hard time calling my work paleo art because it's um, kind of decorative and whimsical and fantastical and um, accuracy is not always at the top of my list. Um, however, I do always research my subject matter and I, I don't want to reinforce any outdated ideas. I, I work really hard not to just... Uh, you know, copy things that I've, that I've seen that are outdated. <laughs> mm. um, but yes, I, I do um, feel that I would like to think that um, a lot of my work fits in under the general umbrella of science communication. Um, I'm really passionate about science communication. And um, I think there's a lot of different there's a lot of different roles in science communication and yes. if I can play a support role to quote unquote real science communication, I'm very happy in that space. Um, I always think of uh, the magic school bus. I don't know. Hopefully listeners are familiar with the, <laughs> the magic school bus book series, but uh, the iconic Miss Frizzle in that series uh, she always wore these crazy outfits um, with these patterns on them, you know, planets and dinosaurs. And that was like a, a major part of her personality, you know, her being, I suppose, the science communicator in the in the fictional world. Yes. And so, you know, if, if my role is to to make Miss Frizzle's outfits, <laughs> it's kind of a silly example, but I, I love no, that idea, I guess. Um <laughs> <laughs> I guess one of my points is to give people an accessible way to express themselves and share their interests in this kind of thing. Yes. Uh, you know, when someone loves a band, they buy a t-shirt or, or whatever with the or bumper sticker or whatever with the band on it. And so for those of us who love science, love paleontology, all that stuff, I always want to make really cool things that people can show off and really be a conversation starter for them. Yes. You know, um, they have a travel mug with a cool uh, dinosaur design on, a, on it. And, you know, maybe they're not the kind of person who's inclined to, to bring this stuff up, but now they have a way to, to kind of start that conversation. If someone 
someone mentions it or or compliments yeah. it or something. So <laughs> absolutely, yeah. yeah, I of course think I'm, I'm absolutely sim simpatico. <laughs> oh yes, yes. I think if I, I if I'll just step on my, my little soapbox here. Uh, I've been trying to draft a tweet like this for all week, but you know, I really think that you know, stylization and abstraction it, it shouldn't be something any paleo artist you know it should should flee from. You know, if, mm. if that's their if that's how they express themselves, because I, I think we get too hung up on the idea that you know, gross anatomy, you know, accurately rendering every uh, every angle and and scale is the most important thing, but there's right. so many things about paleo environments and behavior and geological time that, that we can express in, in many different ways. And it doesn't have to be a, a photo real thing. So I think I would say both of your, your bodies of work, like represent, represent that very well, how you can communicate something of the, of the science or of the, you know, the reality of the prehistoric prehistoric worlds with, you know, in no less a meaningful manner than a photo reel or uh, artist. Yeah. I think a lot about, um, I guess the purpose, you know, uh, like I, like I mentioned, there's, as we know, there are a lot of different roles in science communication and paleo art. And, you know, my role is not to be in a textbook teaching someone about the exact anatomy of this animal um, or to teach about the exact environment or something like that. Um, my role is to kind of spark imagination and get people, or I hope anyway, um, spark imagination and get people excited about this stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think we need photorealistic renderings to do that. I think we need all different types of, of art and stories and, yes. and creativity to do that. So, <laughs> Yes, I very much agree. Well, Sharon, um, so what next for you then? Um, any plans and projects brewing? Yes, always. <laughs> uh, more than ever, I just have uh, sketchbooks just full of ideas for pieces I want to keep doing in the style that I'm working in now, um, now that I've kind of found my footing with um, my process, um, yes. the ink and digital process. Um, it's taken me a long time to kind of find, find a process that I can really um, find a process that's kind of freed me up from thinking about the process, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I know. It makes um, perfect sense. I spent a lot of spent a lot of time um, experimenting in all kinds of different mediums. And um, now that I've kind of found something that I feel is really me, um, it's just like um, an explosion of, <laughs> I have to make up for all this lost time, you know? <laughs> oh, yes. I was wondering when you're, when you're considering what makes it out of the sketchbook and goes further, um, it's an interesting, interesting balance to me to think about how much do we indulge our our love for more obscure animals knowing the what the market likes are you know the top three or four dinosaurs is it ever do you ever have to make those difficult decisions about oh i'd love to do this but it, i don't know how much time i can put into it knowing that not a ton of people will likely be wanting to buy it mm, that is a good question absolutely that um is a topic that is top of my mind every day 
every day. <laughs> You've, you really hit on um, something that I struggle with for sure. The market definitely has a, a opinion about about which animals they're going to buy. <laughs> I guess my my philosophy these days has been I need to make a certain amount of the popular ones to justify indulging in a tiktalic piece, <laughs> for example. Yes. I will tell you, though, I I, I would not discount tiktalic's fan base. Uh, tiktalic <laughs> oh. has, has a, 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 a has a posse, so... <laughs> Oh man, that's that's going to be moving up my list then. <laughs> I learned that myself uh, in the pin set that I did last year. I have no Tiktalics left, and I'm still sitting on a bunch of Lystrosaurus. Oh wow! Pins, so oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, things do surprise me. Like uh, so, that surprises me to hear that. And um, like when I there's a Demetrodon piece that I created called Daydream Demetrodon, and it has um, a whole life of the Permian in it. And I did not expect that piece to do anything. That was kind of a self-indulgent piece, I thought. But that piece has done pretty well for me. So that just goes to show that you just don't know. (laughs) Obviously, you know that, um, you know, Tyrannosaurus, sauropods, especially Brachiosaurus, Triceratops, those are always going to be kind of the top top of the list for me anyway um those are things that tend to sell a lot faster than than the other work but i i love finding those little surprises like um ammonite stuff actually does much better than i would have thought which is good because i can't stop i can't (laughs) seem to stop myself from making more ammonite work oh that's good (laughs) or i uh, most of my artist income comes from print on demand um, I print on demand shops, um, Redbubble and Society6. And um, not only has selling there influenced um, the way I think about illustration in a, in a decorative sense, um, surface design, how to make things look good across a lot of products, but it's also got me to really think about the kind of subject matter and colors and um, I guess I often think of it in terms of what can I get away with, right? <laughs> How obscure can I go and still have these things actually sell? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a challenge for sure. And you, you recently started a Patreon, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of settled on releasing one new downloadable coloring page uh, per month on Patreon. And that's gone pretty well. I really enjoy uh it's a small small community there but um it's been extremely rewarding i just really enjoy really enjoy it so (laughs) Mm, yes and again you're still fulfilling that uh that supporting role of science communicating in in uh getting your small community to uh to uh take an active part in in creation as well. Yeah, yes. Um, there's a lot of things about um, a lot of things about coloring that I I really embrace. There's a lot of the adult coloring book craze. I don't know if it's quite as big as it was for a while there. Um, I hope it's not just a trend because there's there's a lot of discussion about kind of self care and um, relaxation and kind of people being able to explore their creativity, uh, people who maybe, maybe they have this 
thought that they themselves are not very creative or, you know, maybe they can't draw. So they think that, that they can't, that they're not creative or, or that kind of thing. I love all these discussions when it comes to coloring to kind of embrace creativity that maybe people think isn't there. Right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's a very inclusive, I think way, uh, you know, maybe some people are intimidated even by the coloring, but but my, my thoughts about it are is it's a very no barrier to entry way to, to kind of explore your creativity and just play yeah. with color and relax and um, just in, enjoy yourself. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, I mean, you're sitting there for as long as you want to, I suppose, as long as you're going to be coloring, but certainly spending more time analyzing the, the artwork than you, than you would if you were passively enjoying it. Mm. Uh, so I'm sure there's, there's actually probably a lot, a lot of potential for people, even just through osmosis, picking up, you know, little bits of, of science through it, little, yeah. you know, little bits of anatomy and, you know, thinking about color even. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Sharon, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, we wish you luck and continued success, of course. Your Caspersource visa is hereby stamped in perpetuity. Uh, thank you again so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much for having me. And um, thank you to, to everyone else. Mark, Niels, it is fantastic science communication you do with this, the, the blog and, and the podcast. I love listening being able to have the option of listening to it now <laughs> wonderful and uh just thank you yes thank you thank you so much uh, i do want to say because this is our tent pole episode i want uh, to reiterate my grateful thanks once more to the real driving force behind our podcast, our one-person team of producer, editor, human resources, and moral support, as well as co-host, none other than our own Niels Hatzebor. So thank you again, Niels. We have, of course, acknowledged the hefty part that you play before, but there are many things that bear repeating, and this is one of them. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you very much. Um, wow, that's uh, very, uh, very humbling. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I love doing it. Um, and um, of course, what really keeps me going is our listeners. So uh, if you're listening to this, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for recommending this to your friends. Thank you for maybe supporting us on Patreon. Maybe don't. I don't care either way. I'm just so happy that you're listening to it. Uh, yeah, our yeah. previous episode was our most listened to yet. I think the podcast is growing, but even if it wasn't, I would still, I would still do this with love. That's wonderful. And it's been one of the things that's been keeping me going throughout this pandemic. I don't mind saying. Very good. Although you are aware that every time you say pterosaur is pterosaur, we lose a Patreon supporter. Just, just so, just so you know. So you, you need to stop doing that. Really? But the rest of, but yeah, but yeah, but the rest of what you do is obviously excellent work. So well done. The thing with the pterosaurs is that it is actually correct. Every language except English pronounces <laughs> no. the I am no. not beholden to the eccentricities what, of your what language. What language is this podcast um, presented in? <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, what, what language are we... Well, these, um, Mark, these patrons that you say are dropping off each time uh, Niels pronounces the P, are you actually paying them to do so? <laughs> <laughs>
Maybe, yeah. <laughs> there I, you I've go. had to I've had to bung a few people, you know, bribes a few people. So so you you're you're paying for the you're paying for the hosting of the blog out of your own pocket at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm actually paying for the for the hosting. Um I'm paying for us to be on Spotify because I'm actually paying people to drop off every time you say pterosaur like a fool. Well, I'm, <laughs> so, um... I'm actually working on some Patreon rewards. So uh, if you stick around, you might get something. Da, da, da. That'll be entertainment, I'm sure. So yeah, one more reminder. The uh, Pop Paleo session about paleo podcasting featuring us and many other people is going to be on November the 3rd, 2021. If you're listening to this in the future, well, you're fresh out of luck. If you're listening to this in uh, the present day, you can email Chris Manias, Chris.Manias at KCL at AC.UK to see if you can get in on the action. Thank you very much. Mark, Nati, thank you so much for potting with me. It's always a highlight of my month. Thank you so much, both of you. That's lovely to hear. It's somewhat pleasurable for me too. <laughs> well, that's good to know. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. You can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs and on Twitter at Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash L-I-T-C. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon. Uh, pterosaurs, surely you mean pterosaurs. I was very much hoping we would come to that, Niels. <laughs> may, may, maybe, maybe we've seen this bit through. I think, I think maybe, maybe this is, maybe it's done. Let's let's see. Mark, are you there? Yeah, I'm ignoring you. No, <laughs> it's, it's too annoying. <laughs>